and welcome to this episode in Herbert Smith Freehills series podcast on procurement. My name is Rachel Lidgate and I'm a partner in the disputes team based in London. And hello, I'm Nusrat Zar and I'm a partner in the public law team in London. So today we're going to look at procurement litigation um, and specifically the issues we see during the process of the litigation and practical tips to overcome some of those issues. And we are very much aiming this to be of interest to both potential claimants and potential defendant authorities. Just to recap, by public procurement cases, what we mean is cases for breach of procurement regulations, whether they are the Public Contracts Regulations 2015 or Utilities Contract Regulations 2016. As we explained in the last podcast, these cases should be heard in the Technology and Construction Court or the TCC within the High Court. These cases raise quite singular procedural issues and difficulties which really set procurement litigation apart from other forms of commercial litigation or from public law judicial review claims. And a key cause of that is the strict limitation periods which apply to bringing a claim coupled with the standstill periods that apply under the regulations which tend to mean that procurement litigation happens in a very intensive context. Uh, And in the last podcast, we focused on some of the early issues pre-action, which are caused by those tight timeframes. Another key aspect of these cases is the particular procedural obligations and issues which arise in procurement litigation. So Nusrat, perhaps you could begin by talking about one of the issues I've just mentioned, which is the standstill period. Thanks, Rachel. And yes, it's important to note firstly that the standstill period applies only at the contracting award stage and not at the pre-qualification stage. So, for example, the automatic standstill wouldn't apply to a pre-qualification phase of a procurement or other interim decisions taken by the authority prior to the contract award notice. So once the contracting authorities made a decision, it must send a notice of decision to award to all those operators that submitted bids and to those that sought involvement in the process or were invited to take part, but who for whatever reason didn't actually submit a bid. This notice of decision to award has to cover a number of points, such as the criteria for the award of the contract, the reasons for the authority's decision, and that has to include the characteristics and relative advantages of the successful tender and the score obtained by uh, the successful tender and the actual tenderer which uh, is due to receive the notice. Uh, The notice also has to include the name of the winning bidder or bidders and a statement of when the standstill period is expected to end. And this standstill period runs from the day after notices have been sent to all of the relevant operators and ends at the earliest at midnight on either the 10th or 15th day after the date on which the notice is sent, depending on how it's sent. So if the notice is sent by email, as it typically is, that standstill period is going to end on the 10th day. Failure to include all of the required elements in the notice means that the standstill period is deemed not to have started yet. So when a claim has been issued in relation to an authority's decision to award a contract and the contract hasn't been entered into, for example, because it is during the standstill period, the regulations then impose an automatic suspension such that the authority is obliged to refrain from entering into the contract. 
And that suspension remains in place until the court brings it to an end, either by an order uh, or the proceedings at first instance are determined and no order has been made continuing the suspension. And there's a lot of case law on applications to have this suspension lifted. One example is the case of Central Surrey Health and NHS Surrey Downs, which is a decision from 2018. And what happened there is that the court declined to lift a suspension on the award of a contract for the provision of adult community services, which had been automatically triggered by the initiation of a claim by a former member of a bidding consortium, which was also the incumbent against the contracting authority. And the claimant's case here was that the contracting authority had breached the principle of equal treatment by awarding the consortium the contract after the claimant had been removed from it. The judge confirmed that when considering whether to allow an application to lift the suspension, the court would apply the same American cyanamid principles that apply when the court is considering whether to impose an injunction. So the court would look at whether there's a serious issue to be tried, whether damages would be adequate for the claimant or the authority, and ultimately where the balance of convenience lies. In this case, the judge concluded that there was a serious issue to be tried, that it would be less just for the claimant to be confined to damages than to confine the contracting authority to that remedy, and thus that the balance of convenience favoured maintenance of the status quo. As with injunctions, the judge required that the claimant give a cross-undertaking to the contracting authority, which would also protect the leading member of the consortium up to £100,000. One issue that we have also seen emerging for authorities is that it may well be necessary to concede as part of the application to lift a suspension that the breach or breaches alleged by the disappointed bidder are sufficiently serious that the bidder would, in principle, be entitled to damages if the breaches are borne out at trial. Otherwise, the claimant will use the authority's argument to support its allegation that damages are not in themselves an adequate remedy. And it's also worth noting that should proceedings be brought, the successful bidder might make an application to be joined to the litigation or to have its interests protected in some other way, uh, as it will of course have a particular interest in the protection of the confidential information in its documents which might well be in the possession of the contracting authority. Now, if we move on to time issues, and as we flagged before, procurement litigation is constrained by unusually tight time limits. There is a time limit of 30 days uh, for a challenge to be brought directly under the utilities contract regulations or public contracts regulations, which begins at the point that the claimant first knew or ought to have known that the grounds for starting the proceedings had arisen. The court can extend this time limit to three months where it considers that there is a good reason for doing so. It is difficult to to give any guidance as to what a good reason might be, but it will usually be something beyond the control of the claimant, and it's very difficult to get an extension. An extension of time can be refused even where the three-month deadline has only been missed by a few days. That was exactly the case in Mermec UK Limited and Network Rail, which was a case from 2011, And in that case, the court ruled that the action to challenge the public procurement process was brought out of time because the claimant had knowledge of the basic facts, which would objectively indicate that it had an arguable claim or would at least uh, lead to a reasonable belief that there was a claim more than three months before it actually issued proceedings. The High Court concluded that there was no good or arguable reason to extend the three-month period and it wasn't relevant that the three-month deadline had only been missed by a few days. 
It's also important to note that this strict deadline doesn't just apply to claims brought under the regulations, but also those brought by way of judicial review if it does relate to the public contracts regulations. But this limit doesn't apply to judicial review claims which don't deal with obligations under the public contracts regulations. So those concerning the utilities contract regulations are curiously not caught. The usual judicial review timing requirements apply in these instances, which basically means that claims have to be brought promptly and in any event not later than three months after the relevant decision was taken. Nevertheless, it would be prudent to bring any proceedings within 30 days to avoid any uncertainty and to comply with this promptness requirement uh, in judicial review. And on the last podcast, we had discussed pre-action steps in relation to procurement challenges uh, in more detail, and in particular, the TCC's guidance. So please do listen to that podcast if you would like to hear further on that topic. But now, coming on to another knotty problem, which is that of confidentiality. Of course, the disclosure of documents inherently throws up concerns regarding confidentiality, but this is an special issue in procurement cases. The parties are all likely to have some concerns about confidentiality and also third parties such as the successful bidder, especially if, for example, there is a possibility that the procurement process might be rewound to some extent or indeed if the procurement process is likely to continue in parallel with the proceedings. So information disclosed in the proceedings could actually prejudice the procurement process that it relates to. Of course, also bidders might be concerned that public disclosure of particular information might effectively disclose information to their competitors that might then prejudice them in completely different tender processes. So it is therefore usually necessary to set up a confidentiality ring to avoid giving away any of the bidder's confidential information or information about how the process is being run. And that's really so as not to advantage or disadvantage any of the bidders or to reveal any trade secrets. And this is, of course, even more acute in the context of a live procurement process. The court guidance, the TCC guidance, is mindful that the need to protect confidential information needs to be balanced by the basic principle of open justice. And it notes that both cost and complexity of litigation can be increased when the use of confidential information has to be managed in litigation. So assertions of confidentiality should really only be made where properly warranted. A confidentiality ring does require careful management and it does affect day-to-day decisions about how documents are printed, stored and transferred. And those who see documents containing confidential information or attend meetings or hearings where it's discussed must have signed an undertaking so that they are within this ring. In the absence of a ring, documents may need to be disclosed to all bidders through what's known as a transparency pack. So confidentiality rings are now long accepted ways of protecting information. This is encouraged by the TCC guidance as being the appropriate way of enabling early disclosure whilst protecting parties' confidential information. However, we have seen the courts becoming quite sympathetic to arguments that non-lawyers are required to be included in the ring, even from an early stage. And one way of managing this may be to have more than one ring with different degrees of redaction. 
However, these are not straightforward solutions and we note a few points in particular. First, it can be extremely time consuming and expensive to manage a confidentiality ring, in particular because there are different rings with different members and different levels of redaction in each. Depending on the nature of the confidential information and the reason why it is confidential, a confidentiality ring might not actually provide all the protection that a party might want. Um, That could be true for all of the parties, including interested parties such as successful bidders. In particular, it may not be possible to restrain members of a confidentiality ring effectively, uh, for example, if they changed their employment during the course of the proceedings. It might be very difficult to maintain a confidentiality ring in its original form all the way through to trial and beyond, unless the information is inherently really very sensitive a couple of examples being information relating to nuclear decommissioning, as was the case in the case of uh, Energy Solutions and the Nuclear Decommissioning uh, Authority, Uh, or it could be sensitive intellectual property information such as in pharmaceutical disputes. Finally, redactions are one way of maintaining confidentiality, especially in relation to information which isn't in itself relevant But there does seem to be a trend whereby the courts are moving to a culture whereby each redaction will potentially need to be justified. And that obviously puts considerable pressure on the party asserting confidentiality and again is very costly and time consuming to deal with. So moving forward, once litigation's been started, a further issue which is particularly relevant in procurement litigation is expedition. And procurement regulations require that member states ensure decisions taken by contracting authorities are reviewed as rapidly as possible. And the TCC's guidance states that the court is likely to support rapid progress to trial as soon as practicable. So where there's a live procurement ongoing, the parties generally would have three options. First, they could look to pause the procurement process whilst the litigation progresses which could potentially, for policy or political reasons, not really be feasible. Or secondly, they could let the procurement litigation run alongside the live procurement process, albeit this could mean a lot of work for the relevant people at the contracting authority who have to do the day-to-day running of that procurement process at the same time as dealing with the litigation. Or thirdly, the trial could be expedited by the court, with the intention of minimising disruption to the procurement process by having the litigation dealt with really very swiftly. Each of these three options have um, respective advantages and disadvantages. An expedited trial in particular will of course be fast-paced, intense and closely monitored by the court, and that can be demanding on the relevant people at the contracting authority and others involved, and is again something to be considered by the authority when deciding which option to pursue. Thanks, Nusret. So we hope that that was a helpful canter through some of the issues in this type of litigation and some of the techniques for coping with those issues. We thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode and we hope you will join us for our next episode very soon.